Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf. This is the Sing Out Loud, Sing Out Strong episode. With me today is the author who has found a way to combine the ghost of Douglas Adams with the spirit of the Eurovision Song Contest. Catherine M. Valenti has written over two dozen volumes of fiction and poetry since her first novel, The Labyrinth, was published in 2004. And she's won or been nominated for the Hugo, Nebula, Locus, and World Fantasy Awards. And I'm delighted that she is with me now on the line. Hi, Kat. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Rob. I think a good way to introduce listeners who haven't read Space Opera, which is the book that we are going to talk about, is to tell them about the opening of the book (laughs) when there is a, and these are using your words, your description, a seven-foot-tall ultramarine half-flamingo, half-anglerfish thing that appears in essentially every home around the world. Yes. (laughs) So, you know, your standard beginning to a, a, you know, middle-of-the-road uh, book. <laughs> yes, this is your book is anything but middle of the road. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, the Esca. The Esca is the species, um, and everyone calls the Roadrunner. The technology by which the Esca does that is sort of revealed later on in the book, but it, it was an easy way to uh, have everybody on Earth receive the same information at the same time about their planet being invaded by more or less the rest of the galaxy. Exactly. So this particular representative of the species is replicated around the world to all 7 billion or so people and informing them. Maybe you could just say what's what's her message to the people of the Earth? Sure. Well, it's that humanity has come to the attention of the greater galactic community uh, and has been filed as a borderline case. Not really sure if we're truly sentient or not. The galaxy had spent the last couple of centuries embroiled in the sentience wars, which sort of centered on which species were considered fully sentient and which were not. And so the method upon finding a new species uh, from there on out was to compel them very nicely, but firmly, to participate in a pop song contest, which is very thinly veiled version of Eurovision in which the winning species would get the greater share of galactic spoils for that cycle and the competing new species, all they had to do was not come in last uh, and they would be allowed to join the community and take part in politics and everything that goes with being a a power species on the, the field of political battle and if they did come in last they would be neatly and painlessly exterminated and their planet allowed to try again with another species in a billion years or so. Amazing. The stakes are not quite so high in Eurovision. (laughs) Not quite. 
but I mean, one of the things that really inspired me about Eurovision is that in some ways the stakes are kind of high. Uh, Eurovision was started after World War II as a way to reunify the continent that had just spent you know, the last 40 years blowing each other to pieces. And I think it's actually one of the more extraordinary things that humanity has ever pulled off to look back at those two world wars and say, hey, let's sing it out. I think that's amazing. And so there is this dark political background to Eurovision. And one of the great things about it, I mean, yes, it's glitter. Yes, it's goofy pop music. And that goofiness can take a 1960s, 70s form, or it can take a, you know, 2010s form. But that core of political savvy, of reality, is always there because one of the great rules, the genius rule of Eurovision, is that you can't vote for your own country. That neither the professional judges nor the people voting at home are allowed to vote for their own country. So what you see happen is all these alliances that some of them go back centuries are revealed in the Eurovision voting. So when I try to explain to Americans what Eurovision is, I often say that it's like a combination of The Voice, Miss Universe, and World War One, because you can see the Eastern Bloc voting together. You can see Anglophone countries voting together. Uh, it's really interesting, actually. It's kind of a lie because no one votes for the UK. But uh, and and that in that's, itself is this running sort of gag uh and it's it's really extraordinary to watch a pop music contest in which the political state of a continent is snapshotted every year and obviously you you love eurovision enough to allow it to inspire space opera i love eurovision passionately and without irony like i tell people that and and when I'm in Europe telling people that I love Eurovision, they look at me like I'm an insane person because being kind of down on Eurovision is quite popular in Europe, even though Eurovision itself is also quite popular in Europe. Uh, but there's this sort of push-me-pull-you relationship with it and how silly it can be. But I, I have no shame. I love it so much. And I am like a ridiculous door-to-door evangelist with Americans trying to tell them the good news of Eurovision. It, uh, for all the reasons that I just said, and, and because I do genuinely like a lot of the music and the, the internecine rules of it and all of the controversies that have happened and the amazing people who've won and the amazing people who've lost. And, and you know, in, in 2016, the song that won was like a techno song called 1944 which was put out there by Ukraine and is about how the Russians killed all the Ukrainians' grandmothers. Like, it's a really intense song that was done drenched in glitter with a techno beat behind it. And that's art. That's amazing. That's an extraordinary feat of humanity and and a very politically brave thing to do, given what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. And it's not the first time uh, that, that something like that has happened. There's, you know, very famously... Um, in the 90s, there were uh, judges giving their points and you could hear missiles going through the air in the background. Um, you know, it's, it's being held in Israel last year, which is full of political implications. And so I love the dichotomy of something so ridiculous and glam and over the top and, and just totally absurd uh, being combined with really real uh, stuff going on in the world. And that was what space opera became. You know, it, it, it became a reflection of that, a, a frothy, glittery uh, book about rock and roll and, and comedy that has at its core a very dark, you know, political uh, vein going through it. 
Um, but yeah, Eurovision's amazing. I'll, I'll never stop watching Eurovision. The book came about because I was live tweeting it uh, two years ago now, I think. Yeah. So the, the space opera happened extraordinarily quickly. Um, it, it, it went from a joke on Twitter to a hardback book in less than two years. But I was live tweeting Eurovision and uh, a guy named Charles Tan, who's a wonderful uh, fan who lives in the Philippines, tweeted me and said, ha ha ha, you should write a science fiction or a fantasy Eurovision. And I tweeted back, ha ha ha, that'd be cool. And about five minutes later, I got a DM from an editor at Simon & Schuster saying, I will buy that right now. And then did you did you DM your agent and it was all done on Twitter? I did. I, well, no, my agent's not on Twitter. My, uh, my The other agents at the agency are on Twitter, but my agent, Howard Morheim, um, is a very stately gentleman. I don't think uh, he participates in social media, but I emailed him immediately. And he, he still calls it the fastest deal in publishing because in 24 hours we had a contract. Uh, that just said Eurovision in space. That's it. There wasn't even a title. Um, I had no idea what I was going to write. I had no idea how I was going to write it. All I knew is I didn't want to do a fantasy one because I didn't want to do like bard vision or whatever. Uh, <laughs> doing science fiction appealed to me a lot more. And even as I was signing the contract, my husband was like, do you give any ideas? And I was like, nope, not one, not, not even one single idea. And he, he was like, right. And when are you supposed to turn this in? I was like, February. He's like, cool, cool. It's August. I was like, yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> well, I do know you wrote uh, a blog post in 2008 called How to Write a Novel in 30 <laughs> Days. So if anyone could pull that off, it's probably you. I didn't do it in 30 days, but it wasn't far off. I mean, everything about space opera was by the seat of my pants. I really didn't. I didn't even have any ideas when I sat down to write the book. I had the week before spent the week coming up with names for the band. Uh, it had taken me quite some time to come up with the names for Decibel Jones, his bandmates, and the Absolute Zeros. Uh, so Decibel Jones and the Absolute Zeros. And then a couple of the other songs and band names. Uh, I had spent a week doing that. And then I sat down to write the book. And I really genuinely, other than sort of the sports movie structure of any kind of book about a song contest, I I just didn't have a clue. I had decided one of the little Easter eggs of the book is that all the chapters are titles of Eurovision songs. So I'd, I'd given myself that. Um, Eurovision actually, I mean, it's hard to express to Americans how truly popular this thing is, that more than 200 million people watch it every year. Um, there's going to be an Asia Eurovision uh, next year. It is a truly global except America phenomenon. And it's produced memorable stars, oh, although yeah. I think a lot end up being forgotten. But didn't ABBA emerge from that? Yep. ABBA won The Year I Was Born with Water Waterloo. Uh, Celine Dion uh, came from Eurovision. And some weird stuff, too, that people don't think, uh, that people do think is American, but isn't. Like the song Cotton Eyed Joe is actually a, by a Swedish band that had participated in Eurovision the year before. It's hard to explain to Americans that this is such a huge deal. So because it is a huge deal, there's a website where every single song that has ever been performed in Eurovision not only is listed, but has all the lyrics, English translations of the lyrics. Like people are Eurovision geeks the way some people are Star Trek geeks. So it made my research very easy. But yeah, so I started and I had Decibel Jones and the Absolute Zeros. I had the chapter titles, and I knew that um, as another little Easter egg, I was going to have all of the 
alien species and the personal names of the aliens come from the languages of participating Eurovision countries. So I had all these pieces of paper on the wall in my office with lists of words I liked in, you know, 40 different European languages. And I just kind of closed my eyes and wrote something about Enrico Fermi and I was off. And I, I wrote that first chapter in, I don't know, an hour, two hours. And like everything sort of, the tone of the book was set by that first chapter. And I was like, oh, this is a little Douglas Adamsy. I might, might run into trouble there. Because if, if you write a comedy in space and British people are involved, you, you're going to get compared to Douglas Adams. And it's, it's, it's a hard comparison. But uh, I had to go with, with what felt right. And you can't play Eurovision in, in space straight. So it took me three weeks to write the first draft, which was not good, I would like to say. Uh, it was very, very much not like what the final book is. Uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of that first draft. Um, took a couple weeks to get the edits back, and then I, re I pretty much rewrote the entire book in another two weeks. So, it, you know, from start to finish, it was about two and a half months writing this thing. Wow. And did you, when you got edits back, were you showing them to your agent, to the publisher, or do you have a private cohort of people you share things with first? Uh, I didn't really have time with this one to show it to people. I had a real crisis of confidence at some points writing this because I'd never written anything that was comedy before. I'd written comedic scenes in dramatic novels, but like that's a different thing than writing a novel that is supposed to reside firmly in, in the comedic genre. So... I had sent pieces of it to some people just to hear that it wasn't terrible, but I didn't, I, the deadlines were so tight and I, I just didn't have time to, you know, send it out to beta readers or anything like that. Um, I will say that when I was having that crisis of confidence, I was in France and I got to see Eurovision in Europe for the first time, which was very exciting for me and vote. But I was in France and I was there for a convention and so was Christopher Priest, uh, who wrote The Prestige and many other things. He's a total genius. And we were out drinking at a French bar, and he asked what I was working on, and I kind of verbally, emotionally vomited all of my insecurities about space opera on him, and he really just set me on the right path. And, and uh, he, he was my guardian angel for this book. He's thanked in the acknowledgments, because he really helped me to sort of believe in myself a little bit uh, when, I, when I didn't think this book was any good at all. Uh, so that that was kind of a magical moment in the making of Space Opera. But really, I started writing it in March, and I turned it in the first week of June, the final manuscript. That's very impressive. If I go much longer, I, I start to hate myself and the book, and I don't finish it. Like, I, I really am always trying to outrace uh, my own self-doubt. Like, that's why I write fast. It's not because it's fun. <laughs> Well, let me ask you about writing humor. Science fiction, in my experience, often takes itself so seriously. Mm -hmm. And space opera, at least on the surface, and you have mentioned that it does grapple with serious themes, which of course it does, but on the surface, it doesn't take itself all that seriously. And I was wondering, did you find it funner to write or is writing humor actually harder than it looks? And although it comes off as very light and fun and you know, your readers are laughing and I was laughing. Are, are you crying while you're working at it? It yeah. sounds like it was a little of both. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's both. So 
like I said, I hadn't written just straight up comedy before. So to me, it was like suddenly having to draw with perspective, like it's a whole other dimension. So, you know, when you're choosing the words for your sentences, it can't just be the prettiest word or the, the right word to move the character forward or the plot forward. It has to be the funniest word as well. So you have to have a million conversations with yourself and others about like, you know, what's the funniest fruit? We had an actual conversation about whether the word willy or wang was funnier. And and so, you know, you go back to Monty Python and all of these sort of wordy co- comedians. And because it is, you know, they are British protagonists. And I knew that they would be because it couldn't be Americans if it's going to be Eurovision. And I've lived in the UK, but I haven't lived in any other European country. So it was the only country that I felt comfortable setting the protagonist in. And also, I thought it was a hilarious joke that nobody ever votes for the UK. So having, you know... The, the representatives of humanity to galactic Eurovision be British was funny to me. But what ended up happening was that though I, you know, I, I gave you that timetable and that timetable is true. I'm a very fast writer and I ended up t- doing 12 hour days and only coming out with like a thousand words, which is not me at all. You know, I, I usually write much faster than that, but I had to consider everything so carefully and, you know, ha- handle this other dimension of, of making everything funny as well, that it was so much harder than what I'd done before, which is why I had that crisis of confidence, is I didn't know if I was sucking at it or not. And, you know, comedy, it, it, when you're talking about stand-up comedy or sketch comedy, there's an instant feedback from an audience as to whether what you just did was funny or not. But the feedback when you write a novel is so extended into the future. You know, it's going to be a year at least at minimum before you find out if anything you wrote was funny. That's a long laugh lag, you know? So it's very, it was hard to know if I was doing well or not. And I just had to kind of hope for the best. Well, I can imagine why it might have taken those 12 hours to write a thousand words, because some of the sentences (laughs) are very long. So I hear. (laughs) But it generates some of the humor because you're sort of following along and moving in one direction and then it might whipsaw around to somewhere else. Each sentence is its own kind of wormhole. And I, I did that on purpose. And I most of the critique that I've gotten to space offer is people saying the sentences are too long. And like. Yeah, I know they're long, but like, I thought we're all science fiction readers here. We can handle a long sentence. If we can handle made up languages, we can handle long sentences. You know, Eurovision is always a little too much. It's a little like, you know, you wouldn't want to watch Eurovision every day. And so I kind of tried to incorporate that over the topness in in the sentences. And I like a sentence that, that sort of whiplashes toward the end. And then the last thing in the series turns it all around and stuff like that. And I had a so much fun writing that. Uh, and there were days where I would stop working. I'd be like, I did something good today. I don't know if the book as a whole is good, but like this piece of writing is good. And so I was proud of that. And I, it was so challenging for me. And I'm always looking for the next thing that I don't know how to write. You know, I had a Mass Effect tie-in book come out last month, uh, Mass Effect Annihilation. And, you know, I took that job because I've never written a tie-in book. I've never written a book where nobody cares how nice a sentence I can make. They just want you know, pew pew in space. And I took that job because I didn't know how to do that job. And I, in some sense, took this job because I didn't know how to do this job. And I'm always looking for that. Uh, So it was, writing those sentences was a great deal of fun for me. And okay, I I may have gotten a little carried away not having to write middle grade fiction, but I, I like calling them wormhole sentences. Some of them are, and some of them are very short as well.
I just, yeah, I think over the top is, is appropriate for a novel about Eurovision. Yeah, I mean, and I didn't mean it in any kind of critical way. It was just more of a fact. No, no, no. Oh, it's not you. It's it's uh, it's the conversations I've had over the last year about it that like somebody came up to my signing line and was like, long sentences, huh? Like not like, hi, my name is Katie or anything. Just like long sentences. Well, actually, I was thinking like Henry James for Outer Space or something. Oh, I like yeah. that. <laughs> you can read a sentence of his and it's like, wow, this has gone on a whole paragraph and it's just one <laughs> sentence, but it's not painful. It's it's pulling you along. That's the beauty of the writing. Yeah. You know? You're gliding through it. Following up on the just issue of writing humor, in some ways, the alien species that you invent, they're, they're so off the wall outrageous that I actually find them more believable than beings that are in most science fiction books, the, the aliens, because for some reason, I mean, most aliens in fiction have things we recognize. They have eyes. Mm-hmm. They may be big bulbous eyes, and they may have a thousand of them, but they have eyes. They have mouths. They may have many rows of teeth in them that are very scary, but they have heads and hands. But some of your creatures, you know, are little puffs of clouds and viruses that animate dead bodies and they're wormholes you know a quantum tufted domesticated (laughs) wormhole they're so out there that i thought that's probably the way outer space really is so this is a long way of asking do you have a favorite alien maybe you could describe a couple of the more outrageous inventions i love my aliens i love them so much and it was so much fun coming up with them and i mean what you're talking about was kind of my mission brief going into it, because I knew I was going to have to make a lot of aliens. You know, the number of countries that participate in Eurovision is high. It's a lot. It changes every year, because not every country that's eligible participates every year. But, you know, it's between 40 and 50 uh, before it gets winnowed down in the semifinals and stuff. So I was going to have to create a lot of alien species. And I knew I didn't want it to be like Star Trek, where, you know, just the foreheads are different, but they're basically human-shaped. I don't have to have an effects budget. I don't have to have a makeup budget. So I could make aliens that were whatever I wanted it to be. So I sort of made a rough list of, of like conceptual things that I wanted to include. I wanted to have an AI. I wanted to have aliens that were projections that weren't really there. Um, you know, and I, I wanted a couple of different sort of earth animals to have serve as the inspiration for them. I wanted to, I wanted to have all these different kinds of music you know, that would come from these species. I wanted to have the viral aliens, uh, uh, the Vorpret, um, who are just a, a, an intelligent virus that inhabits corpses. That was a lot of fun. But I, I thought for each and every one of those, you know, what, what is music for this species? Because human music comes so much from our own bodies. You know, the, the beats that sound good to us often come from heartbeats, elevated heartbeats, slowed down heartbeats. You know, everything is based on how many digits we have, on how many limbs that we have to play instruments at the same time. The time signatures come from various things in various cultures, and even different cultures on Earth have different time signatures that have different emotional meanings uh, to us, and it's very much like poetic syntax. And then on top of all of that, you know, I come from writing fantasy, and fantasy is full of amazing creatures that have very little in common with each other and very little in common with things that actually exist on Earth. So I think that served me quite well in creating these aliens. I guess my favorite's probably the Keshet, who are time-traveling red pandas. They, I mean, it's just so much fun to write a hyperactive red panda, even if they're not time-travelers. But Keshet are always constantly flitting through different 
time streams, trying to find the most advantageous course forward, even within a sentence that they're saying. So they're flitting through multiple versions of a conversation to find the one that advantages them the most, uh, which is a great deal of fun to write. The Alunazar are the sort of great imperial race, you know, they're, they're the colonizers. And they're based on sea squirts, uh, which are some of the most basic life forms on planet Earth that are very little more than a digestive tube that opens on one end and lets out on the other end. But uh, these particular sea squirts uh, have developed a highly, advan- uh, highly advanced race and ships that are full of water for them to survive in. And uh, they carry their entire ancestral line and descendants in their body they just sort of bud which is actually how sea squirts reproduce on our own planet so the thing is when you're creating aliens you can just look at earth animals because we have some truly weird stuff on this planet very bizarre extremophile species that have ways of reproducing uh have ways of respiring and excreting that are just so different than anything we imagine you can't if it's that different on one planet, the planet that we share, it has to be crazy different on other planets. And I love the Elecon. Actually, I'll take it all back. They're probably my favorite. They're the ones that uh, live on the, the black planet, the planet without light, which is a real planet. That There was an article a couple of years ago about like the weirdest planets that we've observed. And there is one whose surface is so black that it absorbs most of the light. So this is the oldest species uh, that's still around in the galaxy uh, who developed their civilization because other and older civilizations dumped all their crap on this planet to hide it. And they just scavenged that technology and, and created the civilization of that. I'm impressed that you remember all the features of your various species because they are, are each <laughs> very intricately detailed. Well, I made them up. But it helps that the, you know, what helps to remember the names of it is that those names are based in real languages, as I said. So the Elecon comes from ancient Greek, a language I happen to speak. So I can remember that one quite easily. Um, Eska actually comes from English. The Eska is that uh, lantern that hangs off the anglerfish's head. That's what that's called, an Eska. So each and every one of them has a meaning behind it uh, in a very specific language. And that's a lot easier to remember than a, you know, made up word with a bunch of apostrophes in it. Although the the quantum tufted domesticated (laughs) wormhole uh, their their language is nothing but umlauts. It's true. <laughs> well, you know, details like that and, and a lot of, you know, the more out there species. One of the things I kept in mind and one of the, the few things that's directly inspired by Douglas Adams instead of sort of holistically you accept the ghost in the room that, that is the great master is that he has a line in Hitchhikers about various alien species. And one of them is a hyper intelligent shade of blue. And I love loved that line since I was a kid and first read it. And it, to me, encapsulates how different life can truly be. Uh, so I kept, tried to keep that in mind, just that one line. And we never, I don't think we ever meet that hyperintelligent shade of blue. It's just such a completely out there notion of what a being could be that I tried to sort of keep that as, as my badge of, of hope that I could make something as cool as that. Can you explain a phrase that comes up a few times in the book? It's sort of a catchphrase. <laughs> life is beautiful and life is stupid. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was one of those kids that loved quotations. 
had all those quotation dictionaries and always hoped that I could write something that people would quote. And I've, I've written a couple of things that people quote, but I think that when I die, this is going to be the one. I've already seen people's tattoos of it and uh, cross stitches on pillows and things like that. It is a catchphrase. It is definitely, you know, the heart of the book. And I think that you can, I mean, Eurovision is also beautiful and stupid. It was kind of a throwaway line in the, in the first chapter. I didn't necessarily know that I was going to keep bringing that back. But I kept coming back around to that line as a way to sort of justify the existence of such a strange and absurd book that probably shouldn't work on any level, but somehow manages to get from A to Z in the end. But then it also, as you delve more into the characters' histories and the, and the history of the galaxy and, and, you know, the sadness that's at the core of all the glitter. Um, I think it's a phrase that, that takes on a slightly deeper meaning than it seems to. I'm proud of it. I definitely look at my life and think that it's beautiful and stupid. You know, life is full of incredible things. Even, even you know, what people would consider a, just a normal middle-of-the-road life is full of extraordinary moments and and uh, over-the-top emotions. But, you know, life screws us all eventually, too. And you have to remember, so I, <laughs> I sold this book in May of 2016, and I started writing it in January of 2017. And for a lot of us, especially those of us living in America, a whole lot changed between May 2016 and January 2017. And I didn't feel like I could write just a happy-go-lucky book uh, the way I had been planning to because I wasn't feeling very happy-go-lucky about the world. And, you know, that, of course, does fit with Eurovision and, and it's, it's gnarlier history. But I felt like to be true to what I was feeling, I had, to, I had to address things somehow. And so there's a lot in there about refugees and the immigrant experience and what Earth does to its own people. There's a line in the first chapter about the central question in any war is which of us are people and, and which of us are meat. And it's a brutal line for like page two, but it's a big theme in the book. It's a big theme in world history. And how awful humans are is, is the central question of the book, given how bad humanity is to other humans, given how poorly we've treated our planet, how poorly we treat each other. Can we in any way be trusted to be part of a greater community? Are we a truly sentient species? And, you know, I think that a lot of people were asking that question in uh, greater and smaller ways in January of 20, 2017. And though at that time I still had everybody I loved in my life and, you know, I still had my career and I still had a lot of things that were beautiful to me, uh, life had turned out to be intensely stupid in a way. Uh, and, and, weaponized stupid uh, in a way that I I guess I just had hoped it wasn't. And maybe it is the election and it's, you know, me entering my late 30s and, and taking stock of where we'd come since 2008 when I thought everything was going to be okay. And, and uh, that all of that is sort of wrapped up in that phrase and in this book. So to change the subject a little bit, uh, you had said before that you didn't have to worry about the makeup being feasible for your aliens, but I've read that Universal Pictures has optioned the film rights. <laughs> so yep. I wonder how that's going, if you're going to play any role in its development, and how the hell are they going to do the makeup for some of the more outrageous well, aliens? Well, that remains not my problem. 
<laughs> that I'm sure that they will figure it out. I'm, I'm not very involved at all in the process at this point. Um, we'll see if I get more involved in the future. I've, I've had meetings with the people who are working on it, and they're a great team. I'm, I have every confidence in them. I hope that they will make something awesome, but I think I'm, I'm more of a mentor role in this one than uh, anything really official. So I hope everybody stays British. We'll see if that actually happens. But yeah, I, I'm, I, I would imagine they're going to do more CG than practical makeup because some of these aliens are, you can't make a person look like that for love nor money. But as soon as the movie rights sold, one of the things that tickled me was that was the idea that if this movie happens, and of course it's Hollywood, so you never know, somebody from Universal is going to have to go have a meeting with somebody at Microsoft about using the likeness of Clippy. And I am just delighted to imagine what that meeting is going to be like. It tickles me pink. <laughs> you definitely gave Clippy a second life with your story. Oh, and I've set myself up for a lifetime of being, uh, like, every time someone makes a joke about Clippy on Twitter, every time there's an article about, like, hey, remember Clippy? Every time there's, like, a toy of Clippy, somebody links me to it. So I've set myself up for a lifetime of, like, I've adopted Clippy somehow as my, my estranged son. <laughs> Well, you've made Clippy much more palatable, yeah. let me say, with his uh, his or her or its, it's acidic it's, a, it's, approach. It's a, yeah. approach. And I might as well ask you, too, about David Bowie. As you've said, I mean, Decibel Jones is a British pop glam rock character and brings to mind Ziggy Stardust or mm-hmm. David Bowie's Ziggy Stardust persona. And you've actually said in the acknowledgments that Bowie is a patron saint of the book. So... I just wonder how much of Bowie is in Decibel Jones and your relationship to Bowie as a fan and maybe any other performers who inspired you. I'm I'm a huge David Bowie fan. I mean, I think that will come as a surprise to no one who who has read this book or indeed many of my of others. Uh, he since I was a kid, you know, I, it wasn't it wasn't the first time I was aware of David Bowie because I knew who he was when I saw Labyrinth. But I was only seven when labyrinth came out so that was hugely formative for me it remains my favorite movie um but i knew who it was when i saw it because my parents were big bowie fans so his his music's been part of my life as long as i've been alive and his incredible aesthetic and somebody who constantly reinvented himself who was never satisfied with one version of his art himself everything who made himself art I don't think that there is anybody like Bowie right now, and I'm not sure there ever will be again. Uh, he was just such a wholly unique person. And his music kicks ass. Like, you know, there are a lot of people who have that aesthetic mindset and are constantly reinventing themselves and everything, but a lot of their music kind of sucks. His music was amazing, and his look was amazing, and the people he worked with, and you know, the, the things he did that hardly anybody even knows about, like running his own ISP in the, in the 90s. Like, it, it's hard to get your head around just what a fully human and fully glamorous, not just glam, but glamorous, just a, a, a you know, fairy creature he was. Uh, and he's a huge inspiration to so many science fiction writers and certainly to me. So there he is. It is not a Bowie tribute book. But, you know, Decibel Jones is D. Jones. David Jones is, is Bowie's real name. And he, when there's a scene later on in the book where Decibel and uh, Ort go through this machine that sort of creates a costume for them out of all of their deepest 
visions of themselves. And and one of the things that Des is wearing is from a uh, 1973 photo shoot with Bowie. You know, he's he's very much there. And there's there's a couple of Easter eggs if you're a, if you're a deep cut Bowie fan, and if you're not, it's hard to escape the comparison. Uh, except that Des didn't have that longevity. You know, one of his flaws as a person is he never really was able to reinvent himself as an artist. He was stuck in the aesthetic, the first aesthetic that that he came up with and he loved it so much and couldn't let it go even when the moment had passed culturally, even when his bandmates wanted to sort of evolve. He never did. He wanted to crystallize that person he was. Um, and so he's, he's, Desbel Jones is not David Bowie, but... Uh, I, I like to think they might have been friends if if time worked differently. And of course, Bowie died in the beginning of 2016, and uh, I was very he was very much on my mind as I was writing the book. There's certainly I had a whole playlist of you know the great glam rockers uh, playing while I wrote the book. Uh, you can find it on Spotify. It's called Glam Rock Meatpacking District. Um, so, you know, there's there's Freddie Mercury's in there and Janelle Monet and sort of that whole 70s, like Lou Reed, Velvet Underground thing. Um, you know, anybody who put me in that same mindset of like music that glitters in some synesthesiac sense. But I mean, Bowie would never sing in Eurovision. That mm, that would never happen. So there, I think that the aesthetic of space opera is a little more low culture than Bowie is. Uh, it's It's more pop. Uh, and less less high concept. I, I, Des is not as good as Bowie. He's not. He's not supposed to be. You know, the constant sort of joke of this book is that they were good for a minute, and that's it. You know, they are the true one-hit wonder band, and they imploded, and they imploded because of who they were, and they imploded because of the way the world was, but they never could give themselves the longevity that Bowie did. And so, in some sense, these are... Uh, people who aspired to that height and completely flamed out. <laughs> when you talked about David Bowie's varied career, it actually reminded me of what I know of of your career as a writer, because you've published novels and short stories and poems and game tie-in novels, and you've been published by major presses, but you've also been self-published. You've kind of done a little bit of everything, and you just described that a little earlier, how you like to take on a new challenge, something you've never done before. Yeah, I mean, uh, I certainly share that with him. Uh, and uh, I think that since his death, I've thought so much more about what a huge influence he's been on me. And I certainly see a kindred spirit. I went to the um, Bowie exhibit uh, it, at the Brooklyn Museum. It's a traveling exhibit, so it's been all around. And seeing his whole career lined up, I definitely felt a, a kindredness with that, never being satisfied with the one thing that was successful. And moving on to the next thing, even if that happens to not be as successful. I think all authors kind of want to be rock stars, but we're so deeply uncool <laughs> most of the time. Uh, I think probably the coolest I've ever been uh, was uh, like the launch of Space Opera where I had my leather jacket and my uh, glitter dress and someone had painted my face like the galaxy and I was also four months pregnant. And I'm like, I, I feel like I'm as rock star as I'm ever going to get in this moment. <laughs> Well, so what's next on the horizon for you? Something then not as glittery or are you going to go for more glitter? Um, I have a lot of stuff going on, some of which I can talk about and some of which I can't. 
I've got a new middle grade book called The Quidnunks, which uh, I'm going to be working on when I go back to work uh, after the new year. Because I did have that baby. Who I, you know, it's funny. Uh, so my my baby is named Sebastian Wild with an E, and he got his middle name at that Bowie exhibit because there's a whole corner of it talking about Bowie's influences, and there was a big giant picture of Oscar Wilde up there, and I had this inspiration uh, as far as his middle name. So like even my kid kind of comes from that day at the museum. But so I ha- yeah, I have a new middle grade book uh, called The Quidnunks, a new adult book called Well, well it was the thing is. Uh, it was going to be called Us, but that is Jordan Peele's new movie, so I suspect the title's going to have to change. So now I don't know what it's going to be called. We'll see. The Quidnunks is kind of a like the Muppets meets Where the Wild Things Are meets Finnish Folklore, and the adult book, whatever it ends up being called, is a post-apocalyptic Western that's kind of based on our current political situation. And then I've got a couple novellas, and then I've got two novel projects I can't talk about yet, uh, but I will be able to soon, and one not really a novel, but not not a novel project that I can't talk about yet, (laughs) but I will be able to talk about soon. I'm picturing a room where you have five workstations, and you just spend an hour at each one going from one thing to the next, and then the baby somewhere in the middle where you, you know... (laughs) Well, it's it's all it's kind of the baby's fault because it turns out being pregnant is really rough. Like I knew it was going to be rough physically, but apparently my baby needed all my stories to just make his little self because I had a really hard time getting anything done while I was pregnant. So I have to play catch up now. Otherwise, I would have a calmer 2019 in front of me, but I got a lot to do. Well, there's a lot for your fans to look forward to, so I wish you the best of luck with all of that. Thank you. And thank you so much for coming on New Books in Science Fiction. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Catherine M. Valenti, author of Space Opera, which was published in April 2018 by Saga Press. Please subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction and leave a review in the Apple Store. Your reviews help draw people to the show and they learn about us that way our theme music is by michael aaron of quivernyc.com the editor-in-chief and founder of the new books network is marshall poe and the editor is leanne wilson and i'm rob wolf author of the alternate universe visit me at robwolf.net or on twitter at robwolfbooks thanks so much for listening and for your support